You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, hey, either the, uh, the rapture happened and we were left, or, or spring break is upon us. So I hope it's the, I hope it's the latter. We'll see in a few days. <laughs> um, so good to see you this morning. As Jake said, we are continuing through uh, the book of Luke. Before we uh, get into, again, Luke chapter 4, I want to make you aware of just a few things. Obviously, um, Easter is next Sunday. Easter is next Sunday. Our, uh, our greeters at the door will be handing out to you um, invite cards as you leave. Greeters, hand those cards out. Um, congregation, as you're leaving, take those cards, right? You never know when God may just put upon you in an instant an opportunity uh, to put one of those in the hands of someone because it's God who's working um, and using you. I know I'm going to use one this week to invite uh, the lady that cuts my hair who I know um, is not a Christian and not involved in a church. So I encourage you to take those and ask God if he'd provide you an opportunity um, to put those in the hands of an unchurched person this week and invite them to join you um, for Easter services next weekend. Ladies, just continue to remind you, our If Gathering Women's event is coming up. Uh, register for that online, on your app. Um, you don't want to miss it. Uh, last thing for this morning, 24 hours of prayer. We'll be doing Friday, Saturday uh, before Easter so if you're willing to do that with us, take that prayer challenge as a church, uh, you'll get some prayer prompts um, around that and some guidance there for that. But it's always more powerful when we're praying together and know that we're praying together with one another um, for God to be uh, mighty in presence and power as we gather and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. You can let us know that um, on the website or the app. Just let us know that you'll be doing it. There's a button you click there. I don't think you have to put anything in but your name and email address, but that would be Super helpful and encouraging. For the rest of the stuff that you need to know, take the half sheet home that is in your program this morning. Let me pray for us and with us, and then we're going to uh, get back into Luke chapter 4 this morning. Heavenly Father, we gather in your name this morning, able to gather, God, because of your grace that's been shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, there is nothing accidental about who's in this room this morning. Father, your Spirit draws who He wills as we gather together. So God, we put before you our needs this morning, the needs of those in this room, God, those that are hurting, those who are confused, Father, those experiencing loneliness, Lord, those approaching a significant spiritual holiday in the life of the church without someone that they've been so close to for so long because they lost them between last Easter and this year. So God, we lift up these needs to you. Father, we lift up the needs of our nation, God, states and regions so close to us who 
again this week experienced the devastation of tornadoes and the power of inclement weather. God, for those without homes, for those who've lost loved ones, for those whose businesses are gone after a lifetime of investment, I pray that they know your comfort, that you would raise up the church to be the church in those communities. God, across our nation, as we are a people in chaos and confusion, God, would you cause your gospel to shine even brighter and even louder and even clearer during this time. And Lord, in a world that is still marked as it has always been by war and poverty and prejudice and tribalism, God, I pray and we pray that your kingdom will come and your will be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we think about and remember Palm Sunday today, remembering Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the week of his crucifixion, we turn to God's word to hear a word from God this morning from another period of entrance early in Jesus' ministry as the Spirit led him back into his hometown um, in what was a kind of inaugural statement regarding his ministry in the book of Luke chapter 4. Let's begin reading uh, in verse 14, and we will just read and work our way through here as we go. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Jesus returned. He returned to Galilee. Remember, he's been in the wilderness being tempted. He returns to his home region, if you will, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. I want to pause there. This, this phrase, in the power of of the Spirit is consistent with all of Jesus' life so far in the Gospel of Luke. He's conceived by the Spirit in Luke 1.35. He's anointed by the Spirit at his baptism in 3.22. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness toward his showdown with the devil in chapter 4, verse 1. And here, it is in the power of the Spirit that he returns to Galilee. Now, this is a picture not of, of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit indwells all believers, but of the Spirit coming on Jesus for the task ahead to give him power, to compel him, to provide all that he needs to do all that the Father has tasked him with doing. And verse 14 says, the news about him spread through the whole countryside. As he came into Galilee and he began to teach and he began to preach. Verse 15 says he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. We know that he had done some miracles in Capernaum. Uh, we know that uh, in this day synagogues were often not uh, freestanding structures yet. A larger, more affluential centers of commerce like Capernaum had them. But most towns, uh, including Jesus' hometown, did not have large freestanding buildings where the synagogues met. Synagogues met in homes or met anywhere. Synagogue was simply the gathering. 
It was the gathering. And wherever 10 Jewish males were present, there a synagogue existed and gathered. And Jesus was teaching and preaching as he went. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. I want to pause there before we look at uh, what happens after that. This little phrase, as was his custom, could be a message all on its own in our day. Basically, what Luke is saying is that he went into the Sabbath, or he went into the synagogue on Sabbath because that's what he did. He went because he went, because it was his habit to go and to be there as a faithful Jew. It was his custom. And in our day, you'll often find this idea, well, well, should I be going if I don't feel it anymore? Isn't that inauthentic for me to, to go to worship when I don't feel like it? No, it's not. It's obedience. It's always right to do the right thing, regardless of how you feel. And God's people gather consistently. It is a definitive marker defining and characterizing those who genuinely belong to Jesus from those who do not. And I commend those of you in our church who are faithful to the regular gathering of Christ's church week in and week out, regardless of how you feel about it. Regardless of how tired you are, regardless of what else is going on, regardless of whether or not it's one of the many three-day weekends that our nation has so created. And I trust and I pray for expectantly the Lord's good favor and blessing on you and on your household. He is a God who honors those who honor Him. And in a day and age where, where we simply feel like it's, in, it's incongruous to do something we don't feel like, we've lost a great deal of the theology of worship, the theology of discipleship, the theology of redemption, and what it means to be a peculiar people set apart for the honor and the glory of God. We are called together out of reverential duty a sense of being spiritually compelled to do so because it is what the people of God do. Uh, some of you who were in the, the uh, Elam Institute gospel formation class, I think the last class we had was on this issue of God's people gathering as a form of corporate discipline, spiritual habits that form us. And I said that growing up, I didn't notice how much I was being formed by being, um, by God's grace and, and sovereign providence, set within a family where my parents and grandparents were in church every Sunday. It doesn't mean we didn't miss two or three a year, right? Three or four a year. But we did not miss the 25% to 50% that normal self-categorized um, churchgoers miss now. That was just unheard of. And at church time, I knew where my parents were. 
I knew where my grandparents were. In fact, we were so serious back then, um, our family branched out a little lot, right? We had some Presbyterians in the family, but we felt like they were probably Christian. Had one Church of Christ grandparent, we weren't sure about him, right? But we were Baptists, God's chosen people. And so even sometimes when I would spend the night with my grandparents, you know where I had to be early the next morning? Standing out front in my church clothes, which just meant starch jeans, um, ready for mom and dad to pick me up to go to our church for worship. It was a big deal. And did I hate it? Yes. I did. I was a typical kid in every way. But did somehow, by God's good grace, he form in me over years a love for the church and a love for his people that I was completely unaware of during those years simply by the faithfulness of my parents to make sure we were in church, and by the faithfulness of those I saw around me, older brothers and sisters in Christ, who I saw Sunday in and Sunday out. Yes, he did. And I didn't know it for years. Jesus went to the Sabbath to teach, as was his custom. When we gather regularly, we are a living witness to the truth of the gospel. The... um. The first church I served on staff at full time, I was a student minister, so working with uh, middle school and high school students. And I went to lunch, went to a staff lunch, uh, not too long into my time there. And one of the staff members, the full-time staff members uh, on staff at this church was a very eclectic individual, right? Um, he was a, sort of a flower child right out of the 60s, a very interesting guy. And this was right around the time that Gladiator and Saving Private Ryan had come out. It was the high point for movies, you understand. Um, not all this silliness we have now of a remake of all the children's movies. Great time to watch the movie. So we were sitting there talking about these. And this individual said, he said, you know what? I, I didn't like Saving, Prime, Saving Private Ryan that much. I really loved Gladiator. I was like, what? That's blasphemous. You should love both of them. He said, well, he said, here's the thing. Uh, you know, the captain in Saving Private Ryan was simply acting out of a sense of duty. Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator was acting out of a sense of love for his family. Now, this gentleman was twice my age. So I didn't want to correct him, but I couldn't help it. And so I decided... I would correct him gently in keeping with my age. And so we talked about the nature of duty. And I tried to convince him that at the center of duty, at the center of duty, D-U-T-Y, is a sense of conviction that one must do something simply because it needs to be done for the benefit of another. That is the center of, of duty. Something must be done 
regardless of how I feel about it, regardless of what else I'd prefer to be doing. And it must be done because it needs to be done for the benefit of another or another entity or a society or a way of life. How many of you in here, clearly you're here, uh, on a low attendance Sunday, that's a low attendance Sunday all across our country. Um, how many of you have ever gone to church when you did not feel like it? You would have preferred to have been sleeping or somewhere else. Yes, yes. I love the local church so much that it's hard for me to find other hobbies. And there are Sundays where getting out of bed is the hardest thing I do all day. Where I lay there and think, I have to go. I'm required to go. I'm prepared to go, but I don't want to go. I'm exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus went into the synagogue that day as was his custom. And I think there's, like I said, there's an entire message here for us today as modern Americans. Leighton Ford was a Presbyterian pastor, evangelist, missionary, um, once he had the chance to travel and to meet with Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Mercy in Calcutta and see firsthand their ministry there. It was in a very nondescript uh, building with a plain wooden door on the front as they worked with um, dying patients in the most dire circumstances. Leighton said, uh, toward the end of their conversation, he asked her this. He said, how do you keep going with so much poverty and so much death and so much pain around you all the time? How do you all keep doing this year after year after year after year? And this was her response. We do our work for Jesus and with Jesus and to Jesus. And that's what keeps it simple. I'll tell you what, friends, in a culture where churches have to beg and plead and cajole and give gifts and lengthy breaks to get professing followers of Jesus to serve their own churches, their own brothers and sisters in Christ, Mother Teresa's statement is a stinging word of indictment on the condition of our souls, however we think they are today. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 16, he went in to the synagogue to teach, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, this whole narrative scene here is a picture of Jesus under the compulsion and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is behind what scroll he's handed. The Holy Spirit is guiding Jesus' choice of where he's going to turn by impressing upon him the section he feels he needs to read. He turns to a section that we would uh, today call Isaiah 61. It's, it's pieces from Isaiah 61 and pieces from Isaiah uh, 58. It seems uh, Luke was summarizing what Jesus read here. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This has been a difficult passage for people across the years. Many in it, many in it have seen a kind of um, a central scriptural basis for liberation theology that, that the ultimate work of the gospel is physically, physically bringing the poor up out of poverty, physically setting prisoners free and liberating those who are oppressed. Others have seen it as primarily dealing with, with the structures and formation of society. But I will tell you, if you understand the language here, and you understand the way that it's used in the Old Testament, and you understand the rest of the book of Luke, nothing can be taken outside of its literary context and understood correctly. At the heart of what Jesus is saying is absolutely, primarily a spiritual message that secondarily leads us to other implications with regard to how we live toward justice with those in our society. He says that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. One commentator described the poor uh, this way, and it, it really grabbed a hold of my heart. He said, the poor are the losers in the competitive race for scarce resources, economic security, honor, and power. You hear that? The poor are those that are lacking resources, economic security, honor, and power in a society. Their only recourse is to look to God for help. They are the ones who consistently respond, responded in Jesus' day and throughout the church, who consistently respond most directly and honestly to Jesus. Why? Because they know their need. Because they know their need. They know they have nothing to offer. In a sense, they are the one brigand on one side of Jesus on the cross who pleads for mercy and says, I am where I am by my own doing. You've done nothing. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He has nothing to offer. He's broken, dead, and dying. He is right where he's going to be until, his de until he's dead. And Jesus, based on nothing but the turning of this man's heart toward him, says, today you'll be with me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. No works required. No right theology in line yet. He just simply sees Jesus as a deliverer, and it is enough for him at that time. He says that he's been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and, th and this setting free of prisoners throughout the Old Testament is synonymous with salvation. Is that not what God does in our lives when He saves us? Among every other illustration and metaphor and word picture we could use, we are imprisoned people who've been liberated and set free. I'm pulling into the latter part of verse 18 here. But he says that also he's come to give recovery of sight for the blind. Again, the opening of eyes. Having eyes opened throughout Scripture is a picture of seeing 
truth for what it is. And if you think about uh, the end of Luke 24, 31, two uh, men walking along the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens their eyes. Their, their physical eyes were open, but spiritually they were blind. They couldn't understand. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was. And this is our condition apart from God's intervening grace in our life, apart from regeneration where, where God's spirit invades our heart, makes our heart new and calls our eyes to see. We have no hope of repenting, no hope of conversion unless first God acts. This is why Jesus has been sent so that he might act on behalf of people who are poor, who are imprisoned, who are blind, who are oppressed. In other words, people who cannot by their own actions get themselves out of the situations they are in. Do you understand the gospel undertones that are here in Jesus' message? To set the oppressed free. Sin is more than just action leading to guilt before a holy and a righteous father. Sin is an imprisoning force. This is how Paul works it out in the beginning chapters of Romans. Sin is, sin is seen as something outside of us that imprisons us and holds us captive. And like a puppet master leads us to dance this way and that outside of God's will. Verse 19, finally, Jesus says he's been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you have an Old Testament background, you hear Jubilee there. Basically, Jesus is saying the day and the time of salvation has come. It has come with me. It has been inaugurated in me and going forward will continue to its culmination. Church, I just, I want you to hear in this this morning that at the center of Jesus' message is a picture of grace-driven forgiveness and spiritual liberation primarily. Does Jesus heal people? Yes, he does. But his primary ministry, and we'll see more about this next week or the week after, is a preaching and teaching ministry. Jesus doesn't set any prisoners free. He doesn't set anyone who's oppressed free, as they were hoping he would do in a general sense, in a political sense, in a, a social economic sense, because the heart and the centrality of his message is one of grace-driven forgiveness and spiritual liberation. And out of that forgiveness and liberation ought to come men and women and groups of men and women, churches who are pleased to cooperate with the Spirit of God in helping to form more just communities where they are, going into the, the fabric of brokenness, weaving ourselves into it that we might bring wholeness back. Let's keep going. Verse 20. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, not just because he uh, had read the scroll, but because he'd sat down and was preparing to teach. Most of you know, not all of you, most of you know that, that sitting was the posture of authoritative teaching and is in Jewish synagogues. We pull that language out now and we talk about so-and-so who does well in their field at a university has received the chair of whatever, science, the chair of mathematics, the distinguished chair of theology at this school. It's a nod to this historical 
background. They're fasting on him. They're, they're waiting for him to, um, to open up the scriptures to them and to teach. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And it's clear here again that, that Luke gives us a very tiny summary. Verse 21, he began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Luke doesn't tell us everything else he said, but Jesus would have gone on to teach out of this passage. But he began by saying it's fulfilled this day in your hearing. The straight implication is in himself, in the person and work of Christ. And with hearing comes responsibility for for decision. When someone understands what Jesus says, when we sit and we hear the gospel preached and taught over and over and over and over, and we understand what he says, what he is preaching and teaching, it's impossible to be neutral. None of us will leave neutral this morning. In fact, Jesus was very clear. He said, you are either with me or you are against me. Those who are not with me, those who are not active participants in bringing the kingdom of God to earth are against me. Jesus had very divisive language about that. He was very clear and very honest. He's a crossroads to humanity. You know, with elections coming up, God help us. uh, With Jesus, you don't just get to sit out a vote. Every time the message of Jesus goes out, there's a crossroads. And there is this morning. We'll leave this place a divided people. Some will leave who have acknowledged the lordship of Christ, humbly bowed your hearts and your lives before him, confessed your trust in him, delight in him, love of him, a savior and Lord walking with him. And others of you will walk out having heard again another message, having participated again with the people of God in worshiping a savior but holding on to your hearts, being unwilling to confess your sin, to bow and agree with God about who you are, and so continue to stand against him and outside of the saving work of God. This is the nature of who Jesus is and of his teaching. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed. This is following his teaching from the book of Isaiah. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Now, I want to cautious us against hearing here what is most often thrown in here. There actually is no hint of hostility here when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They're not saying this moron carpenter thinks he can teach us. There's no hint of that at all. It is simply a question. Isn't this Joseph's son? And in the literary context, it seems quite obvious that what they're thinking, and Jesus knows ahead of time, is, hey, this bids well for us. He's our hometown boy. We're going to put signs up coming in, hometown of Jesus, of Nazareth, the Savior, the liberator of his people. Maybe we'll put a little plaque in front of his home. You know, we'll say, this was his papa's shop. You know, maybe you have some kind of special thing you wore around your neck if you graduated high school with him. 
And Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what they're expecting. The first church I pastored was not too far from my hometown where I grew up. And I remember Sharon and I accepting the call there with excitement, with trepidation, uh, and getting there. And one of the older deacons came in to see me, berated the former pastor a little bit, which always makes you weary and cautious, um, and said this. He said, he, he, he was from up north. We're glad you're here. You're one of us. I wasn't one of them in the way that he was thinking, one of them that could be easily controlled. He saw my calling there, and I saw my calling there very differently. I saw my calling there as a divine imperative that required I stand clean and honest before God, speak on his behalf, and to the best of my ability, discern where he was guiding us as a church. He saw my coming there as one of them who would think like them and act like them and, and enjoy the things they enjoy and, and have a disdain for the things they have a disdain for. And that's not how it happened. But there's a bit of this going on here. They're like, man, this is good. If all the, even if we don't understand the implications, but we know Jesus is the man and he's from here, then he's our man. He's our man. Jesus said to them right away, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now, the idea here is not if you are God's son, then you can do this for yourself. It's, hey, hey, let, let your greatest work begin right here, right here amongst your people, right? We're your homies. We're your tribe. Let's do it right here. We're your posse, Jesus. We're up for this. Bring in the grand things and start with us. It's the prayer of all, all pastors deep in our simple hearts. God, do great and amazing things through me rather than just do great and amazing things for your glory. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. What we've heard that you did in Capernaum. They want Jesus, in a sense, to dance for them. Verse 24, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, truly is a picture of Jesus moving a little more stern or controversial in his teaching whenever he says this. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And in so doing, Jesus is putting himself in line with the great prophets who had difficult messages to deliver, messages that if accepted led to life, that which were hard to hear and often violently dismissed. Verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus reaches back to a real low point in the history of the nation. And the people listening aren't dumb. They know that he's drawing a parallel 
to that time, between that time and them. And he says, basically here, God was pleased to look past, quote unquote, his people and to do work in those that his people saw as enemies, that his people saw as dirty. And the, and the use of the word cleansed, if you look back at verse 27, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. is a big deal. He doesn't say healed, he could have said healed. But when he says cleansed, he's making a point that Naaman wasn't just healed, but made right before God. And, and the Jews of Jesus' day, they had space for lepers and people like that to be healed in their society, but they were not clean. They were not then accepted into the religious life of the people of Israel. And Jesus is in a sense sticking a dagger in their exclusive nationalistic pride. And what he's saying here is that God will move and is pleased to move wherever people admit their need and are receptive. Wherever people admit their need and are receptive. Where are you with that this morning? Do you know you are a person in need? Maybe you're not very in need financially. Maybe you're fairly well off. Maybe you're not very needy with regard to your health yet. Maybe you're not very needy when it comes to relationships and friendships. I remember my younger brother having a, a call while we were traveling to Colorado. My older brother, my younger brother, my nephew and I were in a vehicle. He got off the phone with this guy pretty quickly and my older brother said, come on, be nice to him, Brian. He just wants to be your friend. And Brian said, look, dude, I'm a grown-up, and I'm all full up on friends. So I, I don't need any more needy tops around me that want to be friends. Maybe you're like Brian. You're all full up on friends. Things are grand. But I can tell you, every single one of us in here is spiritually needy. Every single one of us in here is little more than an impoverished beggar before a holy and a righteous God who has nothing to offer him at our best, but hearts that are so easily drawn away from him. Hearts and minds that at our best are still a slight mix of motives and agendas. And yet God says, if you'll acknowledge that, come, come, acknowledge you need help. And be receptive and I will be there. What Jesus is saying overall here is that the threat in these words is that those closest to Jesus right then and there as it is here and now is that those closest to Jesus are often in the biggest danger of missing who Jesus is, where he's working and how he's working of missing the heart of Christ. While those further from him, those that we look at and see as people with no hope, nothing admirable about them, and yet know that they're broken, know that they're despised by other people, know that other people move over when they come by because they smell or avoid them because they feel like they are so socially awkward they don't know what to do with them. They are aware of their need. 
and if they'll admit it before God. God is pleased to move in the lives of those who admit their need and are receptive. Verse 28 tells us how this scene concludes. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Oh, how the tables turn. When Jesus was saying gracious words that they liked to hear, that they thought were for them only, that they thought would elevate them above others, they were so impressed. They praised him. They fastened their eyes on him, listening with anticipation. Nobody was fiddling with the program. Nobody was looking at TikTok. Nobody was taking selfies. They were looking. They were listening. But when Jesus begins to invade their heart and to reveal what's really in there, everything changes and changes quickly. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town. Do you remember another time when Jesus will be driven outside of town? Part of what Luke's doing here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is pointing ahead with this early rejection to his final rejection outside of the city of Jerusalem by his own people. They drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now, does anybody imagine this is the first time this angry group of quote-unquote religious people had grabbed somebody and taken them to a specific place to throw them off a hill? And then often they would stone them from the height above. The text doesn't tell us, but I feel like we could safely say they knew how to do this. They knew how to do this. They knew where to go, when to get there, and what to do. But, verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Luke doesn't um, elaborate on this at all. He doesn't tell, the, uh, t- tell us if it's some kind of supernatural act He doesn't tell us if Jesus was able to just kind of glad hand and charm his way through the crowd. And I think Luke is very intentional with this. What Luke is doing, because he was an incredibly skilled writer, is he's, he's making a little wink toward another time when Jesus would walk right through the worst that humanity could throw at him. That day that we come to celebrate next Sunday, when Jesus says, All of the hatred, all of the evil that not only humanity can muster, but all of the spiritual uh, spiritual powers and principalities in the cosmos can muster. Even death itself cannot hold me. And he will walk right through it in his resurrection. You and I have a tendency always to resist messages that strike us either with conviction or sometimes that simply strike us as being different than what we thought we knew. As the band begins to make their way back up here and get set up to uh, lead us in a time of response through worship and song, 
I want to encourage you this morning to think about where you are before Jesus. One of the reasons that God and his, his gracious providence has seen fit to give the church a kind of calendar throughout the year is to provide us with times to pause and to think deeply on the great redemptive acts in Jesus' life. And certainly there is no greater redemptive act than his crucifixion, which we'll remember this Friday and his resurrection that we will celebrate together on Sunday. But what do you do with this man? You don't leave here neutral. You don't get the option to just not vote. Everyone in here now comes under the conviction and the responsibility of the Word of God having heard it. My prayer, my plea for you is that you will acknowledge your need before God. That you will bow your spirit, that you will open a heart of arrogance and control and self-sufficiency and say, Jesus, I know I need you. You are the one who brings good news to the impoverished. You're the one who causes blind eyes to see things that we so desperately need to see. You're the one who sets people imprisoned by sin, by my own sin. Free. You are the one who in great delight liberates the oppressed. Would you let Jesus do that for you this morning? In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. And when I finish praying, they'll pass those buckets. And maybe this morning is the morning for you. Maybe God's called you this morning. Maybe he's brought regeneration into your life. And all of a sudden, for the first time, you see your need. And you've thrown yourself on Jesus. Let us know that. Mark on the back of your connection card that you became a follower of Christ today and let's talk with you about that. Let's pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.